Take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to break away from our study in the book of Romans for this week and next. Today, of course, being Palm Sunday, we want to think together about some things with triumph in Christ. We call it the triumphal entry. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a young colt, a donkey colt, in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. As we read in John chapter 12, because Jesus has just shortly prior to this raised Lazarus from the dead, who was dead in the grave for four days, And when Jesus says to the family members, open the tomb, they say, no, 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 he by this time stinks. He's been in the grave long enough that decomposition would have set in. Hot climate. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. When he comes out, Jesus says to those who are standing by, unbind him and let him go. A stunning miracle. Very close in the environs of greater Jerusalem. And that miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, has spread like wildfire into the city. Not only that, coming through Bethany and that region are thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims on their way to the feast in Jerusalem, we call the feast of Passover. And as they are coming through, they are hearing time and time again from all those who know the events, did you hear what Jesus of Nazareth has just done? Lazarus was dead and in the grave. He called him forth from the grave. And he is alive and people talk to him. And Jesus, in that situation, comes into the city on the back of a donkey. And the crowds gather around him and are thronging him. They are laying coats down in front of him. They have palm branches that they are waving. And they are saying, blessed is the one. He is the one. How blessed is the one. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is our Messiah. He is our King. He is the Son of David. It is a day of tremendous triumph that leads into a week of continual turmoil and culminates in those thousands upon thousands of people who have gathered for the Feast of Passover coming together to the pavement in front of Pilate's house and crying out at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Triumph, turmoil. Why do we call it the triumphal entry? Many times in Scripture we see turmoil and triumph 
coupled together. We see it in this text. This text, in the unfolding of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, is a time of great turmoil in his life. And yet he pronounces in faith that it is also an opportunity of God's triumph. I want you to notice with me the text. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. Paul, before we read, is in a town called Troas. We'll talk about that in a minute, where this place is. He is waiting for one of his companions, a man named Titus. One of the pastoral epistles is named Titus. He is waiting there for a man named Titus, whom he had sent to the city of Corinth with a very specific task. The church in Corinth had been invaded by false teaching. Those false teachers were undermining the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul and calling into question the very gospel that he preached. Paul has sent Titus with a letter and a commission to get things in order. Titus is then traveling to meet Paul at the appointed place in the city of Troas. After a period of time, Titus doesn't show up. And Paul is concerned. What's happened? With that in your mind, notice what it says. When I came to Troas, I didn't go there on vacation. Nothing wrong with vacations, but that wasn't why Paul was there. When I came to Troas... Here's the purpose statement to preach the gospel of Christ. Even though there was a door that had been opened to me by the Lord, my spirit had no rest because I did not find my brother Titus. So I left them and I went to Macedonia. Notice the next verse. But. Great turmoil in his life. He's concerned for Titus. He doesn't know what's unfolding. But. Thanks be to God who in Christ. Always. Leads us. In his. Triumphal. Procession. And through us, he is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one group, we smell like death. This is why, as a Christian, 
The world is uncomfortable around you. Why? Because you stink to them. What do you stink like? You stink like death. It's not you. It's not that they don't like you. It's not about you as an individual. It's what? It's Christ in you. And to an unbeliever who rejects Christ, as Jesus said, my friend, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. To those who are perishing, who are rejecting Christ, the Christian stinks like death. When you walk in a room, this is why people are uncomfortable. Not because of you. It's because you smell like something. Death. And then he goes on and he says this. To one we are the fragrance of death, to the other we stink like life. We smell like life. Who is sufficient for this? We are not like so many who are peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. About a year and a half ago, I was in a certain place of business in our community. I won't say where it was. I was in a certain place of business. And as I went in, I was talking with an individual, a person I knew in another context. We were conversing about things, nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with church. We were just talking about life, probably about ranching. And I went on down, and I went down an aisle down the side, and as I went down there, another person who I knew very well came in the door. Started talking to the person that I just started talking that I had been talking to. And the person who came in the door secondly let out a blue streak of a lot of stuff. And I just was kind of looking out the side of my eye down where they were talking because I knew these guys. And I noticed the first guy I was talking to, he goes, Keep it down. He didn't say anything. He said, keep it down. And I felt really stupid. I did. Because these are guys I like and we have a good relationship. As Christians, sometimes we feel funny. Because people we like and people with whom we have a good relationship treat us different. Why? Not just because I wear the title pastor. That's not why. Why does it happen to you? Because you're a Christ follower. And you smell like death to those who are rejecting him. You walk in a room. You maybe see somebody from another church who loves the Lord. You're on an airplane and the stewardess has a cross. And all of a sudden you think, 
man, that person smells like a Christian. Right? You don't know what it is. You don't really smell them. You just think that person has something about them. You strike up a conversation, all of a sudden you find out what? Your brother's in the Lord. Your sister's in the Lord. Why? There's this intangible. In this text, Paul is talking about turmoil and triumph. We have to run through this quick. I've got a lot of stuff to go. Now, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the turmoil. We're going to talk about the place of the turmoil. We're going to talk about the reason for his turmoil. And we're going to talk about the resolution. Then we're going to talk about the triumph real quickly. And we'll talk about the spiritual reality, the compensating sufficiency, and the apostolic sincerity. Now, notice, first of all, where he is. He is in Troas. Now, I'm going to do this real quick for time, and I'm going to draw it. I didn't put a map here. You can look at your map, but if you think, here's Turkey, Asia Minor, comes across here, here's the Greek Peninsula, and over here is the Italian boot. Okay, Adriatic Sea, Aegean Sea. There's an isthmus here, and right here sits Corinth. This is the church that Paul has visited and has preached the gospel to. He's going to be right here in this place, Troas. We know from other texts that when Paul leads Corinth, he goes over here to a place called Ephesus. He is in Ephesus for a time, and then he works his way to Troas. When Paul left Titus over here and he sends Titus down here to Corinth, they have made a plan. Sometimes when we're gathering cows and we're riding, we'll all make a plan. We'll say, you're going to go find cows in that drainage, I'm going to go in that drainage, you're going to go over there. We're all going to meet at such and such a place at such and such a a time. Two or three hours go by, you're all going to be there. And somebody doesn't show. What do you do? You, you, well, you can't get on the cell phone. There's no coverage. Right? What are we going to do? He didn't show. So they have planned, and there's no cell phones. There's no communication. There's no way of knowing what's happened. Paul has gone over here. He is waiting for Titus to come from here and to get there. Troas is a very strategic city. In the ancient world, it's close to the environs of another city. They sit, they're twin cities that sit right together, same seaport. You've heard the city of Troy, Homer and Iliad, and all that. This is Troas. It is a strategic seaport. It controls what is called the Bosphorus Strait, which goes up into the Black Sea. The Black Sea sitting here is the Crimea Peninsula. All traffic that goes north into Russia or Central Asia, parts of Europe, has to get inland through this strait. Whoever controls the city of Troas controls this entire region. Region, the commerce. 
Because of that, this is an extremely strategic place, and Paul thinks, I'm going to go there and I'm going to plant a church while I'm waiting for Titus. He gets there, and Titus doesn't show up. What happens? You read the text. Does Paul just say, oh, well, another one bites the dust? I don't know what happened, my buddy. God has opened to him an open door for effective ministry. And what's going on in Paul's heart? He has no rest. He is concerned for who? Titus. Does he love the world? Yes, he does. Does he want to see people saved? Yes, he does. Does he want to see a church prosper and grow there? Yes, he does. But he is torn to pieces on the inside because he doesn't know what happened to Titus. And what does he do? He walks away from an open door. God has put in front of him an open door to plant a church. He has no rest in his spirit. He says, I'm going to go and find my buddy. I've got his back. I want to know where he is. I want to know what happened. He goes to Macedonia. Macedonia is right here. He goes across there on a boat. And he gets there. Now, we're going to skip these next verses talking about open doors. This was my Sunday school lesson, so if you didn't get it, you missed it. But this is all about open doors and what an open door is. What I want to do is think about no rest. He has an open door in front of him, an effective opportunity for ministry. And yet he has no rest in his heart. Here's so we understand what this means. In Acts 24:23, this word that's in this text is used, no rest. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard. Though he said you can give him some freedom that he should not prevent any of his friends from serving him. Okay, so this is a link in this text. He's under guard, but he says, I want you to give him some freedom. This is the opposite of the word in the, in the Greek language for rest. Okay, so it's the word to rest means to be free, and yet Paul has no rest. He has no freedom in his spirit. His spirit feels completely bound. He has no rest. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, later in this book, he elaborates on this. He says, in fact, when I arrived at Macedonia, okay, so he's going to go, let me go back here to our map, it's a wonderful map, he goes from Troas and he's going to come over to Macedonia. When he gets to Macedonia, what does it say? No. In fact, when we got to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were troubled in every way. There was conflict on the outside, and there was fear on the inside. Does that sound like a spiritual man? Are you, you know, 
I want us to think about this for a minute. What does it mean to really walk in the Lord and to be a spiritual person? Does it mean that you're never going to have turmoil? It does not mean that. Paul is a man who is filled with the Spirit of God. He is walking in the Spirit of God. He is following the Lord's directives. And yet he says of himself, I was troubled in every way. There was conflict on the outside. And there was fear on the inside. But God who comforts the humble comforted us when Titus showed up. Titus got there. Gave him the good report. We won't go into all that. But I want us to think about this no rest thing. He has an open door and yet he has no rest. How do you deal in your spirit when you go through periods of time where you have no rest? If you have no rest, does it mean you're outside God's will? Does it mean you're living in sin? Well, it might, but it might not. When you have no rest in your spirit, when you are struggling on the inside, when there is conflict on the outside and there is fear on the inside, when you are troubled every way, how do you deal with that? How did Paul deal with it? with this situation. Let's think about some things. First thing he did was this. What do you do when you have no rest in your spirit? First thing is this. You prioritize your responsibilities. You prioritize your responsibilities. When you don't know what to do, you think about what are my responsibilities? What has God put in my life that is my responsibility? A lot of times when there's no rest in our spirit, It's because our mind is just going 95 miles an hour. And it's nighttime, and you're struggling mentally, and and you can't get which end is up and which side is down, and you're, you're struggling. And, you know, we've all heard this. A problem that is well stated is a problem that is half solved. Sometimes it's just that nebulous fear that is just rolling around in your head, that is leading to overwhelming anxiety. And what you need to do is just get a grip on life by looking at your life and saying, okay, God, what are my responsibilities? When Paul prioritized his responsibility, he did not say my first responsibility is to plant a church in Troas even though everybody would say that's the spiritual thing to do. That's what God called him to do, and that's what he should do. What did Paul say? My first responsibility is my companion, Titus. I have no rest in my spirit, and I have a responsibility to find out what's going on with Titus. And he walks away from the open door, and he goes to find Titus. When you have no rest in your spirit, that's where you start. You look at your life. You look at your relationships. You look at your responsibilities. And you say, those things that are somewhere way down the list, I'm checking them off, and I'm going to do what is my priority in responsibility. And you start there. The second thing is this. When you have no rest in your spirit, 
seek a resolution to the situation that is causing you the unrest so you can focus on your next step. Now, resolution does not necessarily mean the problem just went away. It may not go away. He leaves Troas and he gets to Macedonia. He still hasn't found Titus and he still doesn't have rest. But he is seeking before the Lord to find a resolution in a biblical way to what is going on. When you look in your spirit and your spirit is just churning like a stirred up murky pond, it's hard to discern what is your next step in life because you can't see anything in the water. It's too dirty. You need to seek for resolution to that issue and work through it. And so Titus, he realizes, until I can resolve what's going on with Titus, I am no good planting a church in Troas. I'm moving on. And he goes to find him. Now, let's think about the triumph here. There's a spiritual reality, there's an overcompensating sufficiency, and there's an apostolic sincerity. These are things I want to mention real quickly. The spiritual reality is this. Paul is in turmoil, and yet he's able to say, but God is leading me in his triumph. This is very similar to a literary device that is used in the book of Job. Think about the book of Job. In the book of Job, you have this spiritual reality that's going on in heaven that Job can't even see. He doesn't know any of the conversation that Satan and God have been having about him. Isn't that something to think about? God and Satan are talking about Job, and Job has no idea. And all of a sudden, one day, everything turns to turmoil in Job's life. And he doesn't know what's going on in the spirit realm. All we can see is what we can see. But we walk by faith, not by sight. But this is our physical reality, and sometimes our physical reality is turmoil. But the spiritual reality is what? God is leading us in his triumph. And everywhere we go, and every person we meet, we are emitting by his spirit an aroma. Even when we don't say anything. There is an aroma of Christ associated with the Christian. To those who are perishing, to those who are rejecting him in that spiritual reality, they don't even know why they don't like you. You just smell like death. I was reading this week about the sense of smell. Think about your sense of smell. Isn't it amazing? With COVID, many people lost their sense of smell, didn't they? And people started getting it back. But it really messes with what? Not your eyesight, it messes with what? Your taste. Things don't taste good when you can't smell them. So the two go hand in hand. But it's amazing how God has created our nose to smell in just the right range. Your dog 
has 50,000 more olfactory receptors in its nose than you do. I'm glad I don't have those 50,000 extra receptors. I smell just enough. I don't mean I smell just enough. I'm sure I do that too. But I smell just enough, right, that it's pleasurable or I get a whiff that's not very good. But think if you were a dog and everywhere you went. I mean, when I come home after going on visitation, if I've been in somebody's house where they have a cat or a dog, my dogs know that dog, right? They come. I may not even petted that dog, but they know who that dog is really quickly because they smell. That's why dogs are so good at de detecting drugs, IEDs, and all these things. They have all those receptors that God put in their nose so they can smell. And there is a sense here that is an intuition thing that he is talking about in this text that when you go into a room and you are with other people, they smell something they don't know they're smelling. And to some people it stinks and they are repulsed. And to other people, it's like a magnet. They want to know what you got. You smell like life. Who is sufficient for this? That's what he asked the question. Who is sufficient for this? Surely not us. Because it's not us, it's Christ. It's Christ, his Holy Spirit, who is in us. And so he talks about this overcompensating sufficiency that is ours in Christ. And then he talks about the apostolic sincerity. Let's look at this real quick. This is so important for all of us. He's not just talking to pastors here. He's not just talking to teachers. He's talking to all of us. We are not like many who peddle the word of God but as men of sincerity. Oh, that's a good phrase for us men. Men of sincerity. As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. Let's think about this one. He says, we are not like so many that peddle God's word. There's two things that a peddler does. Number one, he dilutes the message. Number two, he manipulates people's decisions. Somebody who is a peddler who's going around peddling wares, many times dilutes the message. In Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about a peddler who takes the wine that he's going to sell and he dilutes it with water. He's selling an inferior product. One of the lessons here is don't ever dilute the Word of God. Don't change the message. Don't be embarrassed by the message. Don't try to explain it away. It's God's word. Don't peddle it. What else does a peddler do? He tries to manipulate people's decisions. He uses strong arm tactics. A peddler sells junk. And the way he sells it is by pressure. When we were building this building, I was tired. Oh, I was tired. Came home one day on a Friday evening. Friday evening was kind of always our family evening. And we'd a lot of times get a pizza, 
watch a movie. I'm pulling into the driveway, and I was tired. And this guy drives up. He's selling vacuum cleaners. I didn't invite him in, and he somehow got in the door. Amy was about to kill me and him both. I had a pizza we had ordered. He ended up eating half the pizza. He stayed there. This is no lie. We were going to watch a family movie. It's like 6 o'clock when I get there. Like 9 o'clock. And this is no lie. We're like shoving him out the door. And I didn't buy the vacuum. And that's why he stayed so long. Right? I mean, this thing would pick up bowling balls. It would, I mean, it would cure every problem in a human's life. And, you know, in you know, 55 easy payments of $1,000 a month, whatever it was. And I'm like, no, no deal. And he kept trying to sell, kept trying. He was so manipulative. He was pushing and pushing and pushing. And the more he pushed, the more certain I was, I was never going to buy it. When you talk to your friend... When you talk to your family member who loves Christ or, or who needs to know Christ, don't peddle God's word. You don't need to use strong arm tactics. You don't change the message. Your job is to be like a waiter, to get the food from the kitchen without messing it up. That's all your job is. The results are God's. So, as we close, how do you turn turmoil into triumph? How do you go from turmoil to triumph? Look with me at verse 14. Thanksgiving. But thanks be to God who leads us in his triumph. The way you get out of this pigeonhole where you are stuck and you are in turmoil and you have no rest and you get to the spiritual reality of triumph is one word. It is when in faith you look at your circumstance, whatever it may be, and you say, thank you, God. That is the key. Thanks. I read this week the story from one of our missionaries who was working in the Ukraine. One of the pastors through the ministry that we support, when the Russian tanks rolled in, was 20 miles away from his home in Kiev with his wife, away from the church and in a small village. They were surrounded in that village by Russian tanks, by armor. All communication was shut off. There was no out. They were there for, what, a month? Finally, this week, as the Russians were beginning to pull back and were leaving carnage everywhere, as you saw in the news, 
they decided they needed to get out of that village and they needed to get home. Turmoil. He and his wife prayed. They set out on the road. They're walking down the road and they meet Russian soldiers and a Russian officer who immediately asked them, where are you going? They say, we're going to Kiev. I passed our church there. I need to know what's going on. They say, turn around and go to Belarus. He says, I'll sit here in the ditch until you let me go. He and his wife park there. I guarantee there's no rest in their spirit at that moment. People are losing their life for lesser things. They're at a crossroads, and all of a sudden, here comes a school bus. And it's hauling refugees to Kiev. And that Russian officer let them get on it. They get to the river Dnep, Dnepr. The bridges are blown. There's no way across. Except for thin ice this time of year and some wooden planks that are laid at places where they're rapids. With other refugees, they make their way across the river. They form a train on the other side, and most of them are headed to Poland. But he and his wife went back into the city of Kiev to care for their church. Turmoil, but triumph. God caring for them. But thanks be to God, who in every circumstance, every circumstance that comes into your life, if you will turn it to praise, he will lead you in his triumph and will make known through you his fragrance everywhere you go. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth as we close this morning. I pray that you would help us as individuals that when we go through times of difficulty and times of shadow in our spirit, we don't know what you are doing, that, Father, you would help us to learn to praise you, to worship you, to thank you, and to trust that in Christ we are triumphant. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.